Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the distinct pleasure this week of sitting down and talking with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Nadia is the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong Places, and Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I give you Nadia Boltz-Weber. Nadia, welcome to the Mockingcast. You're a longtime friend and first of Mockingbird and first time on the podcast. Thanks. I'm a big fan of Mockingbird, as you guys know. Well, we're big fans of you. So it's 2017, and among many things, this year will go down, I can't imagine for what in world history. But what it is, on one level, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I thought I had this idea late in 2016 with David Zoll that we'd have some people on and ask them what the Reformation means to them, like several times a year. And so you were the first person that popped into mind. And this is not all I want to talk about, but as someone who is the poster child, or at least, yeah, I think the poster child for Lutheranism right now. And I was thinking, is there one for Methodism? Nah, <laughs> nah, mainland. You're the only mainland that I can think of that has. What does the Reformation mean to you? You mean the event 500 years ago type of thing? Yeah, like how do you connect the then to the now? I think it gives us hope, especially right now in in a way that the powers and principalities <laughs> um don't can topple in the sense that like um systems that we live under or ways of being or things that are largely unquestioned but seem counter to the kingdom don't always stand like can be toppled can be questioned that there can be a radical change it's possible and so i find that hopeful um i don't i mean i feel like in a way America's never lived up to the ideal of what it was supposed to be about. It's never been about what it's supposed to be about. And perhaps the same is true of the Reformation. You know, I don't know that we've lived into that promise um, of what it could have been or can be. But maybe that's just the human condition. I don't know. But yeah, I think just the idea that things can change is pretty hopeful, especially right now. Do you think there's something about like imputation where like i think about what king did right and he didn't sell everybody like the law you're awful and some level he said hey you're not i see something great here in america that we're not quite living into is there like a law gospel dynamic to hope where you kind of like call people into their best future selves rather than like what they're not and whip them i don't i don't even know about if our best self exists, <laughs> I mean, it's what I've been Hidden with God in Christ. I mean, I mean, in the Bible, right? Sort of. It's, 
you know, I've been talking about that on the road a lot this last year is like how condemning that distance is between our ideal self and our actual self, you know, Mm. between our ideal income and our actual income or like between our ideal weight and our actual, you know, like our driver's license weight and our actual weight, you know, like there's this thing that is so, is the sort of pressure we live under knowing the distance between those two things. But the, the self who God is in relationship to is my actual self. My Mm. ideal self doesn't exist. And so Subsequently, I'm really not an idealist, uh, never an idealist when it comes to human projects or human institutions. Um, but I'm totally an idealist when it comes to God's redeeming work in the world, like God's ability to get beautiful things done through horrible sinners. Like, I'm completely idealistic about that. So I think... I don't know. I struggle whenever we talk about our sort of better selves because I just fear it's going to become a project of the ego, you know? Is that hard, like, in a mainline denomination? Well, in any denomination. I mean, like, denominations tend to come up around human projects and idealism, right? So, like, is that – is there tension there in 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 the – in living in that space? Because you seem to some, you seem like in what I've read of your stuff and what I've listened to in interviews, you seem like someone who's not disgruntled in. You're not, I mean, you seem pretty happy in your local uh, church context that you started, but also you, you you don't seem like a jaded person in the wider Lutheran context. That's not true. I just, the thing is, is I I don't want to be disloyal, but do I have things that drive me crazy about my denomination? Absolutely. Do I feel like I'm at odds with the values that seem to be, um, that, that my denomination seems to think are more important than the gospel? Yeah, I do. I mean, I have, I have a very searing critique of my own people, and at the same time, you know, Semmel used to set Picotter. These are the same people who've caretaken a theological tradition that saved my life, you know, and that continues to be transformative in the lives of my parishioners. So, you know, I they the institution deserves my respect for that and for the fact that, you know, we we uh, became a grown-up congregation two years ago. Like, we had to adopt a constitution and bylaws and all that crap. And, like, um, the, the model constitution of the ELCA, we had to adopt that. And there were only a few things you're allowed to change, right? And What, like, could, what could you change? Like, well, what, what you could change, like, when you could have your aunt when you had your annual meeting or what how many people are on your church council like there's some things you could change what you couldn't change were the membership categories now my people could give a shit about membership like literally at the beginning of church when we welcomed people because we've always had so many visitors we'd say hey we don't have membership here at house for all and what that means is that everyone who the spirit brought to be in the room is the church today and we're glad you're being the church with us right so it was so important that we actually greeted people with this news that there's no membership but and like you know here's this this congregation that is just thriving and has all these young people and all these people who aren't Lutheran and all these queer folk, right? And like, 
most most ELCA congregations aren't doing great, right? So in order for us to be considered a real church, we had to adopt a model constitution, which is an amazing document for how to run a church in 1964 when we were nailing it, right? But yeah. not so great for like a church that's thr- already thriving now, right? So that was that was estab- a church that was established in the cultural context where we still find ourselves in, right? So um, there were four membership categories and we couldn't change them or delete them. And they were all based in, uh, baptism. Now, I'm a huge fan of baptism, but there are people in our community that aren't baptized for their own reasons. I like that as a theological statement. I'm a fan. Baptism, big fan. Big fan. Huge fan. Huge, huge fan. fan. I did I'm a one fan. Sunday. So, uh, hey, we had an altar call on, on uh, we always do an altar call on baptism of our Lord Sunday because we always preach about the promises of baptism. So in the sermon, we always say, hey, if you're not baptized, these promises are for you. Here's water. What's to keep us from it? But no one's ever taken it, uh, us up on the offer until this last baptism of our Lord Sunday. Maybe it was because my colleague preached and not me, and he's just better. But Reagan did that, and we had a baptism at the beginning of the liturgy. He preached the sermon, and during open space, which is this, like, 10 minute period after the sermon when we write prayers and we it's like contemplative two people came up and were like you know i really feel the spirit nudging me i I think i'm ready to get baptized these two adults so altar call lutheran altar call it's a thing that's like the book of acts like no pre-baptismal catechesis working on the back end exactly man okay so what we did this is getting to the point of being a sort of loyal radical in my denomination what we did was we we asked the lawyers in chicago you know at the churchwide headquarters hey can we add a category of membership in our bylaws so what we did was we added a membership category called participating members and participating members are people who participate in the liturgical life of our church and have shown a love for our community through prayer, work and generosity. And the lawyers in Chicago said, yeah, it's fine. We have no problem with that. Right. But what we did not tell them, what we failed to tell them is that we will never put anybody's name in the first four categories of membership. We will only use our category so we subverted the Constitution. So subversive and litigious. Through its bylaws. But what we also did was we wrote a preamble to the Constitution, and it said You're this. like Thomas Jefferson, little wig. You got the, the quill. Almost exactly like Thomas Jefferson. So then this is the preamble. We said, we, we confess and acknowledge that there are aspects of the model Constitution of the ELCA that oppose the ethos of our community. We also confess and acknowledge that this community would not exist were it not for the ELCA. So we commit to live in the tension between these two things um, and to live by this Constitution until a time at which the model Constitution of the ELCA is changed. Do you feel like that that would solve, a like, or at least save a lot of people a lot of time in therapy. Just write this to your parents. Like, hey, we acknowledge that. Like, <laughs> exactly. You can open a little therapy clinic. Like, hey, we're going to go a different. We're not like psychoanalytical. We're not cognitive behavioral. What we are is the preamble to the Constitution. And also you could become a participatory member at the end of it for free. Well, the thing that I just this year has in some ways been about for me and is that this realization, it's so simple, but... Nothing's ever just one thing. You know, we, yeah. we want it to be. You grew up Church of Christ, and you're, when you decided that you wanted to be, you were called to be a minister, you, I mean, if, I'm t- if I recall right, like you, you had the moment where you were going to tell your parents and your dad, 
reached for the for his Bible, and you thought he was going to kind of club you with it. I mean, not maybe physically, but metaphorically, but he didn't. Yeah, he. Um, I mean, because you know, women can't even pray out loud in front of men in the Church of Christ. Like, women can't be ushers. So I think most people shouldn't be allowed to pray out in front of other people. <laughs> I mean, pray, for public prayers, it's like a Jedi gift. But. In front of anyone, yeah. yeah. Um, but you couldn't even, women couldn't even be an usher, right? So much less be a preacher. And so, you know, when I sort of confessed to my parents that I felt this calling to be a pastor to my people, but that I was also, I was conflicted about it just because it would mean doing a lot of personal work I just didn't want to endure, you know. Um, he got up and grabbed the Bible, and he didn't turn to the epistles, you know. He turned to closer to the front when the book of Esther, where, you know, she's telling her uncle, you know, I think God's calling me to do this, but I, I maybe I'm the wrong person, and I don't want to do it. And he just read the verse that said, but but you were born for such a day as this. And then they, he closed the Bible, and my parents gave me a blessing, and they prayed over me, and they haven't stopped. I mean, they go to House for All Sinners and Saints. They go to their Church of Christ in the morning, and they go to uh, House for All Sinners and Saints at night. And there, there really is nothing sweeter than seeing the way that my parents love my parishioners and the way that my parishioners love my parents. And wow, to love you. I mean, like, cause to, for the child to in some way be able to become the teacher— Oh, yeah. My dad said, he said, Nadia, you have no idea how much you've influenced um, us theologically over the past five or six years. Have you seen the movie The Right? It's it's a movie that came out a couple years ago, and it's about a guy who goes through seminary as a Catholic priest. And he he realizes he's not sure if he believes in God. And he's about to quit the seminary. And he goes outside of his dorm in the rain, and a woman on a bike gets hit by a car. And he instinctively runs and does last rites for her. And and his dean was running to do the last rites, and his dean tripped and fell and lost his... And when playing with his glasses or something, he just sees, and he's like, that man is supposed to be a priest. And he tells him he's going to quit, and the dean's a little manipulative. Well, we could make you pay all your tuition back. Cause he's like, but I'll tell you what, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go work with the Vatican exorcist, because uh, I think you'll find your faith there. And it's an amazing Anthony Hopkins plays the psychiatrist exorcist. But you had an experience like that because you were a stand-up comic and someone died and they asked you, right, to do the funeral. And it was when – I, when I read that, I, I thought of – all I could think of in learning that part of your story was this movie The Right where, like, you're, you're in the role mm. before you even know yeah. what the office entails. Yeah. And it fits. Yeah. I mean, I'd already done weddings for people. You know, I mean, like my friends who were just like not religious at all would ask me to do their wedding. I mean, and in a way, it's become the way that I try and walk people through discernment a little bit. Uh, if they're wondering if they're called to, you know, ordination, is that I say, well, tell me stories about the way that people in your life have already made you their priest, you know? Mm. Um, that's external call. In, like in my denomination, they talk about internal call and external call. You know, internal call. Ah, that feels super sketchy to me. I mean, just because it could so easily be a form of spiritual self flattery or wish fulfillment, mm. or somebody might be so sort of humble they'd never consider that maybe that's what's stirring within them, right? So, I mean, internal call feels like there are there are a million reasons why people pursue ordination. (laughs) 
And only a few of them are legitimate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You describe yourself as having the gift of faith. Yeah. Because I, I, at the same time, it seems like you've helped a lot of people that don't just feel like they emotionally or relationally are wounded, but you, you seem to speak to people that are pretty reflective. Like, and, and, and so, I mean, is it weird? Do people assume like, well, you must have been a doubter and that's why you have an integrated faith. And yet you seem like someone who, when you talk about somebody saying to you in your book, you say, in Patrix, you say that somebody accuses you of being like an intellectual thumb sucker. Yeah, because it's pretty, I mean, it's just like, it's pretty crazy stuff to believe. Like, I get that. But um, yeah, I do. I think God creates faith in me. I mean, that's Luther's, you know, explication of the third article of the creed in the small catechism, you know, that I, I believe that I cannot by my own understanding come to my Lord Jesus or believe in him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel and enlightened me with the Spirit's gifts, like that even faith is something that God creates in us. That's it's not just like I I adhere to that as a doctrine. Like that's literally like I to be totally honest, if I wasn't a preacher, I I don't know if I'd have faith. Like mm. I don't it's hard to imagine having faith if I wasn't preaching. Because um I I get sort of I rediscover it and am sort of bowled over by it in the process of writing a sermon and preaching a sermon every week and I have to find a proclamation for my people. That's my main job is to find a proclamation for my people to find some good news for them and the fact that I'm able to find that is the spirit working in the process. It's not because I'm a good Christian. It's because I'm a bad Christian and I need it so desperately that I just dig and dig and dig until I finally uncover something that feels like it's legitimately good news and not just vapid optimism or platitude, you know? So in that process, I go, oh my gosh, it's this, this thing is real. You know, I mean, that that's the place I get to every time I end up preaching. It's not where I'm at Monday or Tuesday, you know? Mm. <laughs> so. Hmm. Can you say something about uh, that t- the tattoo? It's on your back. Mary, is Mary Magdalene on your back? No, it's the Annunciation. Wh- where's Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene's on the inside, the outside of my right forearm. Yeah, I got Mary Mag when I was in... Um, in seminary, just because um, I've just always been compelled by her as being the person who showed up, you know. she Like my bishop said, the greatest spiritual discipline is just showing up. And she just kept showing up. And she, you know, provided. And she, I mean, the feeling of like... I, the thing I find so fascinating about her is I have so much curiosity about what she felt toward Jesus because he's the one who cast out her demons, right? Like, mm-hmm. like how she had to have felt known in a really beautiful way mm. by Jesus. Like that's the piece that I love. And that, um, and I just, I love the fact that she turned at the sound of her name. That's being known, you know? So I I love that. And, like, 
did other people feel like they knew her and they didn't? And yet he did. And, and like, I actually, the past two Easter vigils, we, we sing a lot of scripture. And so somebody sings the resurrection account in this beautiful way. like And, just, and you sing it a cappella, right? Yeah, everything is a cappella. But someone sings that John 20 account. And both the last years, I, I actually cried a little when, mm. when she was like, when she said, um, where is my, like, I he's gone and I don't know where they've put him in that like desperation of going, there was only one person who fucking knew me, you know, Mm. who like really, really saw me and he's Mm. gone, you know, like Mm. I just, there's something about that that just breaks my heart. And then he wasn't gone, you know, she just didn't recognize that he was there. And then until he said her name. So I think the intimacy of that was, is what I've always found really compelling. Where where does that connect? Like, does that echo your own story in the sense of like feeling people knew you and didn't come back? Yes. I mean, we all have that like stories of abandonment, the wound of abandonment on some level. Um, but also just wanting to be known and feeling alone, you know, is something I've struggled with a lot in my life. And yet writing memoirs that people read doesn't, it ends up make you feel more known. (laughs) So for all the listeners out there who might attempt that, go for it. You won't feel more known. You'll feel less known. You know, we're we're a culture that's obsessed with the cult of celebrity, right? And so the church often mimics that in some weird ways. Correct. And yet, you know, you're not like a real celebrity in the sense of you know you'd get bumped every time. (laughs) Sure. But yet, there's this weird recreation of celebrity. Mm -hmm. And so, like, how do you deal with like? I mean, I think I guess everybody on social media has like. We all have not just an internal self now and a self that walks around the world, but now this projected self. But you've kind of got a self that people project for you. Yeah. So you've got like a fourth self. Mm-hmm. Like, so, which everybody has that on a smaller level, but you've got it. Like, like I, you know, before we started recording, like I told you two things. One person you know a little bit and another person you don't know at all who wanted me sure. to say something to you that, you know, one of whom you probably never meet. I mean, like, like how do you... Mm. figure out who you are in the midst of all of that well the thing i realized a while ago is that like my fans and my critics are both passionate groups of people who are equally distant from the truth right so there's like the truth of me as a person my fans are just as far from that as my critics are and so subsequently Neither of those groups are going to ever be reliable information about myself to myself. So um, I sort of hold both those things super lightly. I mean, I try to honor the fact that, like, if somebody's had some kind of experience or transformation or something as a result of, you know, reading a book or listening to my sermons or hearing me speak, like, that's awesome. Like, I want to honor the fact that that's very, very real for them. And and it's an honor to have in some way been adjacent to that. But, um, But it's not me. 
right? I, I mean, it, that's not me as Nadia Boltzweber as a person, right? It's just this, like, by the time I've done something, written something, and put it out in the world, then somebody else consumes it, then they have an experience that, that now I'm several steps removed from what's happened, you know? And so I can't, I can't identify with it or see my value in it. Um, it's like super dangerous, I feel like to do that. But same with my critics, I can't, I can't absorb what they're saying about me and think that that that's now how I'm going to see myself, you know? Hmm. You have a dog named Zacchaeus. And yeah, he's 160 pounds. And from the tip of his nose to his tail, he's almost seven feet long. That's huge. Yeah, But he's, he's to scale to the rest of my family, you know? Like my my son's six seven. I'm five so. foot ten in heels. <laughs> That's why I always think women get to say that. Like I'm five nine in heels. I'm actually like I'm like five seven and a half. But if I wore heels, when it becomes socially acceptable, I will be five nine and a half. Which means I would still always be the point guard on your family's pickup basketball team. I that would <laughs> I almost always wear heels. Pretty much every day of my life. I at least have a two-inch heel on, sometimes four, two to four inches, yeah. Because you know what? If you're 6'1", fuck it. Why not be 6'5", at that point? Exactly. At that point, what is it, right? Go big or Doesn't matter. Yeah, just go in for, for it. A pen, in for a penny, in for a pound. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. So there. do you know, have you ever heard of this guy, Thomas Halick? He's a Czech um, psychotherapist. He became a priest when Czechoslovakia was still communist. And he's mm. written these wonderful books. He was friends with John Paul while the Iron Curtain was falling and stuff. But hmm. he wrote a book called Patience with God. And um, the metaphor for the whole thing is Zacchaeus. <laughs> and he said that, you know, the difference, the only, what fundamentalism and atheism have in common is their forms of faith that are driven by impatience. <laughs> and that his calling is to be um, for the Zacchaeuses, the people who <laughs> are afraid to draw near. <laughs> And as, as you were, um, you were telling me your dog's name, I just, um, yeah, you, you seem to have a beautiful ministry for people that are afraid to draw near, and yet you invite them yeah, in they, to eat. I mean, they're so much more interesting, though, than the people who are fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, it's, when people talk about, but well, that's that that, that 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 assumes the premise that there ain't there's anybody that's fine. <laughs> well, I guess who are comfortable in faith, I guess would say that. But yeah. um, I don't know. I I get blown away every week by the people at my church. Quite honestly, I mean, I I'm so filled with. I know I've had bad Sundays where I was just kind of cranky the whole time, but it's only happened a few times. Mostly, I'm just like. I'm filled with more sort of love and affection and joy than I am all week, you know, when I get to be around them on Sundays. Like, they're, they're, they're extraordinary in their capacity to show up and to love each other, and I don't know. They're just, I feel really lucky to be their pastor. Yeah, well, I think the luck probably goes both ways. Yeah, they love me. My, my they push, do love you. They, like, and it took me a few years to realize that, or not, not, not that I thought they don't love me, right? But to actually, in the positive, go, oh no, these people love me, you know, to allow myself yeah. to be loved. Um, now, I, I don't get, I, I don't get like my emotional needs met through them, you know, in this kind of personal, private way. But 
Um, but I do try to take in the fact that they love me, you know. And you're moving tomorrow. Yeah. That's so stressful. It's like the most stressful thing. It is stressful. I'm sorry to interview you on a day or moving on the on moving Eve. It's like Christmas Eve, Thanksgiving. This is moving Eve. Yeah, it's moving I, Eve. I usually want to like just crawl in a hole and die when I have to move. <laughs> I hopefully I'm never going to move again. I hope, but I mean, it might happen. But at least you're not in the age of phone books where you have to get new phone books. We have the internet. That's right. Oh my gosh, phone books. Yeah, yeah. My kids. It's funny when you think of the things your kids don't know about, you know? Like, my kids don't know how to write cursive, and they didn't know how to, like, address an envelope and put it where you put the stamp. And they aren't eight, you know? These, they're, like, 16 and 18. <laughs> yeah, kidding. no, it's weird. It's it's like, this is a blessing and curses of, of technology. Like, yeah. you you learn, like, something is always lost. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And but sometimes it's a good thing, because yeah. I don't like looking stamps. Yeah, fair enough. Nadia, thank you so much for being with us sure. i feel like we've talked we've talked we've said it all we said everything there is yeah i agree uh, i mean <laughs> and i i wish this was video i'll have the video recorded though i guess i mean i have a backup that records video because you're lovely i mean you uh you uh what do they say that you inherit the face your soul deserves so yeah you're lovely well thank you that's very thank kind you, thank you for doing this yeah my pleasure big fan of mockingbird i try to direct people to you guys as much as possible you don't only try you succeed oh good actually we actually i know I, I could give you evidence on itunes reviews so oh that. i love that yeah. that makes me happy good thank you and we'll have you back okay sounds good Good day to you all, and what a day it is. David Zoll is with us, the animating force of the zeitgeist from Charlottesville, Virginia. For those who don't know, that's where Mockingbird is headquartered. And we also have with us the lovely, the one, the only, the inimitable Sarah Condon from Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. Friends, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. I feel like I haven't been on the cast uh, for two weeks, and I, uh, I'm always excited to. Uh, Sarah's got a new computer, so maybe maybe all sorts of new possibilities have opened up. <laughs> Before we get started, I just like to say it was this week was the National Prayer Breakfast, so we're praying people here on the Mocking Cast, and I want to offer. I want to ask everybody. This is not an imprecatory request. It's an intercessory request because our, our prior new president addressed the prayer breakfast and he asked, solicited prayers for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He said, you know, when I left Mark Burnett, he knew, I mean, he said they tried to replace me with a big movie star. So, uh, could, you know, could we give Arnold some prayers because he needs some help in the ratings? Now, he didn't say whether to pray that his ratings would go up or down, but I'm seeing this as like religious progress. He did actually ask solicit prayers for someone whether his were imprecatory or not we will ask intercessory prayers for arnold who i and in all full disclosure i'm a big fan of arnold schwarzenegger Mm. that does not surprise me pumping iron is one of the best (laughs) documentaries i've have you ever seen that documentary it's amazing 
I've also seen the uh, the incredible documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster about a bunch of like brothers who grew up obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it basically ruined their lives completely because like they were never big enough, strong enough, or fast enough. Oh my god! It, but it's a really, really well done documentary. And the whole time they're trying to interview Arnold about you know steroids and stuff, and uh, he kind of refuses. But it's it's it, you realize the culture around Schwarzenegger, which has very little to do with terminator and stuff actually there's there's a whole subculture around his bodybuilding that is he's sort of he's still the peak of the mountain when it comes to mr universe Hmm. there's the the the, the documentary in pumping iron says you arnold you had a reputation for being a little bit of a prankster and arnold tells a story how this guy comes to him in a gym and like He's like, I- I'm really working. You're the man. I'm going to come in. And he says, all right, let's see what you got. You know, come to the locker room and see. But he's like, the guy looked terribly. So I had a little fun with him. I said, all right, I'm going to teach you what I learned from all the best bodybuilders and athletes in America. The thing to do is when you do a lower pose, when you go down, you go, ah. And then when you raise your arms up, you go, ah. And so here, I told him this would be the rage. So he goes to the Bavarian Open and starts doing that. And everyone's looking at him like he's insane. He gets carried off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> that Arnold's like so proud of himself that he did this to this guy. Like he subverted oh this guy. So like, and you know, it's, he looked terrible. So what could I do? I did. What it's a great. prankster! Mm-hmm. What a, what a silly silly human being. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a interesting day to day on the Mockingcast. We're we're kind of doing um, like a social science roundup of so, like the you know, we're, we just you go from body image to body image thing here. But the first uh, item is about fat shaming. How do you guys feel about fat shaming? I love it. I love doing it. Yeah. It sounds like Ar- Arnold was engaged in it just now. The, uh, Not Sc- good. Scott, you sent us this uh, from the Telegraph. That uh, report for out of the University of uh, Pennsylvania says that fat shaming actually makes people's health worse. The Kind of the law increasing the trespass here. The idea that fat shaming, the term used to describe mocking a person for their size, inspires victims to shed the pounds is a myth. Scientists have warned, but it, does anyone actually believe that? I don't. I don't know. Um, researchers said painful messages drive people toward comfort eating and may increase the risk of cardiovascular metabolic disease. Professor Rebecca Pearl at the University of Pennsylvania said there is a common misconception that stigma might help motivate individuals with obesity to lose weight and improve their health. We are finding it has quite the opposite effect. When people feel shamed because of their weight, they are more likely to avoid exercise and consume more calories to consume uh, to cope with this stress. And then not even that, those who internalize negative stereotypes face a greater threat of heart disease, strokes, and diabetes. Um, kind of, uh, and what's, what was a little, I don't know if it was appropriate or inappropriate, but they link to, uh, something that the Telegraph had reported about fat shaming of a, the fat shaming of a nine year old by Santa Claus in December. And I shouldn't laugh, but it was. <laughs> I, well, I guess we know who was naughty and who was nice in that mall. <laughs> it, it, they were talking about this, uh, this, this kid in North Carolina who goes and t- sits on Santa's lap. And he is nine. You know, I guess it's sort of on the older side to be doing this, the, the, that. But, um, he tells Santa he wants like a, a drone and something else. And as he's getting up, Santa says, <laughs> he says, we'll, we'll get that stuff for you, but lay off the 
burgers and fries. And it, <laughs> it was, it, I, I feel terrible that it made me laugh, but it really broke this kid's heart. And he's like, I hate Santa oh. Claus. I hope he gets fired. He didn't seem like he wanted to be doing the job at all. And he told me to lay off the burgers and fries. So, okay. First off, if you're taking your kid to a mall to sit on a stranger's lap, who's probably in middle age and a little portly, making minimum wage, and that's what he's doing. I, I, you're not going to expect sensitivity, okay? I mean, if you're not going to pay Santa's more, don't expect Santa to be nice. I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's just it's it's the nature of the beast, you know. Until Santa's unionized, we're not going to get congenial behavior. That's actually fairly accurate. Having done the whole mall Santa thing, I'm always surprised at how like gruff they are with children. But yeah, yeah I mean, I I don't know. I know so many women, um, friends of mine who struggled profoundly with their weight and Mm -hmm. they all they all grew up with mothers who were like you know told them that they were fat and that they need to lose weight and told them they couldn't wear certain things and you know there was so much legalism around their bodies and um and their weight that it just kind of has done a lot of them in as adults like Mm -hmm. I, i think there's nothing more dangerous than saying this kind of stuff to people who are struggling i mean it's people get nervous when you you know when you compare things like being overweight to alcoholism, but there's a, there are a lot of correlations and, you know, yelling at someone who's struggling with alcohol about being an alcoholic doesn't help. Right. I mean, this, it, it just doesn't, these things don't help. And we know that, um, I don't know why people still feel compelled to do it, but they do. I mean, I definitely know, I know grown women who, you know, can't, they can't eat certain things around their mothers without hearing some sort of a comment, which is just, it's incredibly painful. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Where I came across this was actually Robin Quivers was reading it on the news segment of Howard Stern. And mm. earlier, Stern was fat shaming somebody on his staff. He's like, well, I'm worried about Benji because, you know, he you know he looks he looks good and healthier when he's not eating so much. And Robin's like, Howard, fat shaming doesn't work. He's like, it worked with me. Remember when I was heavy and my parents took me? You were over. You were there in Long Island. And we visited and they took me in the kitchen. They said, Howard, look at you. You look like a house. What have you done to yourself? And it worked. I got thin. You know, it's interesting. If you do wind up losing the weight, you'll be like Howard Stern where you're neurotic about it. Exactly. He'll, he'll say like, you know what? You know what I do? When he's like fat shaming. You know what I do? I order veal parmesan once a week and I want all that pasta so bad. But I scoop most of it out and throw it in the trash can outside of the container. So I'm not tempted to go back in and get it. And mm. I want it so bad. And he kind of, and you're like, gosh, like the the... Again, it's sort of like you never win an argument because if you do outmaneuver the person rhetorically, all they'll remember is not the point you were trying to persuade them mm-hmm. was true, but they'll remember that you shamed them. And so I think it's sort, of, sort yeah. of the same dynamic here. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, we've, we've, this is the day here in the office we're shipping the food and drink issue. And I think you can't get away from the fact that uh, when it comes to fat shaming, a lot of it is based on the fact that people think of fat as a moral failing. It's a, mm-hmm. it's not a biological issue. It's a moral issue. Mm-hmm. And so you're blaming people for, um, for it, it, it becomes one of the few things we can agree on. I was, it was at a dinner party, uh, last night and I was talking to someone whose parents are, consider themselves to be very, very progressive and, um, tolerant and accepting. And yet they're like, um, unrepentant waitists. Wait, like mm. they're like, oh, but they're just waitists, you know. They just really don't, and and you know that is sort of like that's acceptable, I guess. To um, and and this is where the law has shifted. I think you know we talk about those who are outside the bounds of society are not the you know people who were considered lecherous and immoral at one point. Now it's 
now it's it's just shifted towards it's the old and it's the fat yeah. basically yeah. and um you as long as you can get and the sick and if you can get them mm-hmm. away from uh, pu- public uh, eyesight then 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 you're dealing with it and so what do you do uh we, we there was that this american life with lindy west which was unbelievable where she's basically like i'm a fat person call me a fat person i'm not someone who's trying to get skinny anymore i'm mm-hmm. not i'm not a person who's i'm not a, a skinny person who's just failed at everything <laughs> failed their whole life how do i move forward and you know the second we hear that, people who are into health will be like, well, let, hold on. Let's not bless unhealthy eating. This is an epidemic, diabetes, public health costs, yada, yada, yada. But it has it, it's very similar to sort of uh, I'm a Christian now, but now it's up to me to get sort of better. And my whole life uh, post-conversion is about improvement. And what happens if you don't improve? What do we do with people like that? What do we do with if, if, if you never lose the pounds? Are you just a person who has failed your whole life? And, and how do you, where do you go with this? I, it, it's, I think it's a profoundly interesting question that people aren't talking about. We try to talk about it in this issue, but fat is an F word, you know, it's, and it's a much worse, it's a much it's a much worse uh, slight than uh, anything related to F-U-C-K. I mean, I think I think calling someone oh, fat totally. is like, oh, yeah. you, you hear someone gasp, like, oh, yeah. you yeah. said that word. Yeah. And yeah. you think, well, w- this has become so moral. This has yeah. become a absolute transgression uh, on every on every level that we can't. And the more it becomes outlawed, the more you can't talk about it. The worse the problem's going to get. There's just no question in my mind. And the worse that the, the the more people feel trapped in that in that shame. I think I don't know. Well, and to Scott's point, um, it was interesting that you talked about Howard Stern because um, I've probably said this on here before, but um, when I was in seminary, I served as a chaplain, you know, at a psychiatric hospital. And I was on the floor that I was given um, was the eating disordered patients. And they all had stories of being fat shamed. I mean, these were not women who had been thin, you know, these were women who had been overweight. But so it's like, well, you know, I think, I mean, it's all it's all eating disordered behavior, right on on either end. And Mm -hmm. so what's the marker of success then for losing weight? And then how do they know when they've lost enough? And I mean, it just it's such a dark, dark thing to put on one another. And um, I'll say it again, don't say this crap to your daughters. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, you know, I I went to McDonald's last night before dinner. I was running errands and I had two double hamburgers, but I didn't get fries. And I got a Diet Coke. Well, we did that thing in the in the Try article. to balance it out. Try to balance it go. out. <laughs> it's like you make yourself better. I'll have a triple Big Mac, super size, with a Diet Coke. In the issue. Because, you know, I'm, I'm trying yeah, to Yeah, yeah, with out. a Diet Coke. Please, please. I need to say it. Spare the calories. In the mm-hmm. issue, Ethan, we did this big survey of people like, what would you eat if you weren't afraid? What would you eat if you weren't afraid? Mm. If you had some degree of freedom around this issue, and maybe right. if you had freedom in, in this area, you would eat more healthily because your your compulsions are leading in the other direction. But the, man, the answers—fried insects. The answers we got were incredible, and I, I think uh, also reminds me of that. Uh, I was reading the short story by Stephen King the other night called "Quitters Incorporated" about people quitting. Um, smoking and the way they get people to quit smoking is by threatening to uh beat up their loved ones like that's how what happens or uh you know and it, and then then once they quit smoking because they're afraid of uh their loved ones being essentially murdered they're then they're told to lose weight 
and but it sticks because they say that they'll cut off the the guy's wife's uh, pinky if uh, he d- goes above 180 pounds, and so maybe that amount of law works. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's that, so funny, and it always amazes me any torture scene in a film when that somebody gets to the point where they get their pinky their pinky cut off whatever before they talk. I'd be, once you pulled out the exacto knife, I'm like, singing like a canary. Yeah, exactly. I'm hopping, can what I get a B? Can I get a B flat? All right, I'm ready. I'm gonna sing now. <laughs> well, like I just it, can- the thought. Of, like I, I mean, I would if somebody was like, we're gonna give you a paper cut and pour lemon juice. <laughs> like I'll tell you where the secrets are. Here they are. I'll tell you stuff you didn't ask. I'll answer more. I'll answer more than was asked. Please. Well, what King is so brilliant at is that he finds that this this actually works, and people are thrilled. Like they're mm. super happy that mm-hmm. they're skinnier and that they've lost the weight, even though the way that they've lost the weight is essentially a gun being held to their loved ones. And that um, it's, it's uh, we, we're, we're so messed up when it comes to this kind of thing. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Oh I mean. my gosh. I could keep talking about this, but I'm not. We have other things. Shame. 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 Uh, we can, we can, we can, oh, by the way, we do also have this dating app, which is amazing. That we yes, can talk about. that's the next thing. But it's also based in social science. There's a new dating app that's coming out. It's de- debuting. It should be out by the time a lot of people hear this cast, February 8th, called Hater. Which is exactly what you think it is. It I love it already. I love it already. Right, right. It matches people based on things they mutually dislike. Love this. I know. I thought of Sarah immediately. I don't know what <laughs> what that says, Sarah, but I thought they say it's a swipe based vape based app hater first has you swipe down for hate, up for love, right for like, left for dislike, or opt out for neutral. And uh, there's also the option to top to press down and see what percentage of people responded with each reaction. There are over two thousand topics right now, including Donald Trump, gluten free, camping. Marijuana. Oh, camp- yes, camping. Yes, ca- yes. Uh, yes, butt no. selfies. <laughs> butt selfies. I didn't know that was a thing. And Taylor Swift as a person, not as a not as mu- a musician. I didn't know that's a thing, but I butt selfie. I, I, I don't. I, oh, I don't hate butt that. Selfie, I don't, I don't hate know, that. but Taylor Swift, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and eventually the plan is to add user-generated topics. I mean, nothing could go wrong there. Oh my um, Let's put the mocking cast in. Just unite people, Let, and then let's put individuals. Let's put all our names as topics. <laughs> And see if anybody like gets matched up because they like hate us. Well, yeah, exactly. And then we'll go to their wedding. The um and ruin it. Uh, back in 2006, a social psychologist at the University of Florida, Jennifer Bosson, led a series of studies that examined how people bond via shared negative attitudes towards others. This is, I think, this is uh, really telling. In one study, participants were asked to list one thing they liked and one thing they disliked about a fictitious character named Brad. Then they were told they would meet someone who either liked or disliked the same thing about Brad. The study found that people who expected to meet a stranger felt closer to this person when they believed they shared a negative as opposed to a positive attitude about a man named Brad. It's not Something the- about the way you say Brad every time you have more contempt about Brad. Yeah, yeah. And if any of our listeners are named Brad, sorry for you and your parents that chose it. Well, this is the key line here, though. Uh, it's Brad. not that we enjoy disliking people. It's that we enjoy meeting people who dislike the same people. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we enjoy disliking people; it's that we enjoy meeting people who dislike the same people. Mm-hmm. 
This is so accurate. Like, I think about all the conversations we have late at night, Josh and I, my husband, like, and we're both standing in the kitchen and like, we both got a glass of white wine. And I'm like, you know, who's driving me nuts right now? And he's like, who? And then like <laughs> we have this like five minute, like co-rant together. And that, I, I mean, I feel, I mean, I, this probably says nothing good about me, but I feel very close to my husband. Those times. I mean, it's also true for friendship, right? Like the, I have, certain friends that like we'll get around each other and we're like you know who's driving me nuts right now and immediately like there's this affinity mm-hmm. um and also i was thinking back to you know when i was dating in college and there were certain guys that i'd go out with and i would complain about a professor or something and if they were corrective with me at all i was <laughs> like bye weirdo like this is not gonna work out so mm-hmm. yeah i mean i, to- I totally relate to this it's it actually is like, affirming for me that they're doing an app because I'm like, okay, I'm not totally depraved all by myself. You know what I mean? So this pirate walks in a bar and he sits up and says, give me a drink, laddie. He says, sorry, I just want to know, do you know uh, you have a steering wheel, like a ship steering wheel protruding from your pants? He goes, ah, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> get it? All right. Ah, right, uh, pirate, it's driving. See, the thing is, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, play yeah. off he- your thing about being driven nuts. It's good. All right. Got it. You'll be here all week. I was thinking about, I was actually, Sarah, I was just thinking about how this reminds me of our conversations about Scott. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See? That's my kind of joke. I'm the the exemption from the study. I like bonding with people that don't like that. And I think I, I actually might some days like just not liking people. Oh yeah, it's, it's both. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. I actually, the yeah. I, I probably like too many people actually, but it's, uh, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I like a lot of people. Well, Bill, I mean, Bill, Bill Bohr, my friend, always says to me like he's really happy when he hears I don't like somebody because uh, he's like because I'm always like ah they're a good per they're a good guy yeah, that's a you good are thing. you are pretty redemptive I'm pretty like people. I've got I, well I just like I just am, like I, I'm near I like people in weirdness I well kinda, yeah. you, have, if, you have to really go a high threshold but once you cross it. It's tough to get back. Mm. <laughs> mm. It's like Sim- Simeon. Uh, the, Simeon uh, is Simeon's the king. Simeon the great one. Peace be upon him. Well, let me say one thing about this is that uh, it makes sense in light of our theological categories. I mean, I can't not say this, but when you're talking about someone you mutually really like, there's always an element of the fact that this person is so great and you are less great as mm. a, like there's an element of measurement mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. when you when you're measuring and you're putting yourself above that person with another person you are both you're inflating each other uh mm-hmm. through your um you know you're you're actually you're you're increasing your righteousness and the other mm-hmm. way even if you're mutually so humble and you just have this respect for this similar person you're going to b- find yourself a little bit um uh, you know, down a peg, and you'll be reminded of how, f- how how far short you fall, and that actually usually isolates people from one another. So I I see it as playing out in that regard, uh, and I also know that Sarah, what you say is when you when you're really frustrated with someone, and someone says, "Well, I don't quite agree." That is such a huge uh, division. I, oh I mean, yeah, especially when what you're emotionally saying is like, "I'm." I'm upset, you know, yeah. and, and what the, what they're saying is you shouldn't be upset. Right. But, it, but it, it always takes the place of, well, this person, I find that's true almost always unless you're dealing with someone else's parent. 
Because mm. then if you say, oh, yeah, you're right, your, your parent, your, 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 your mother really is terrible. And mm. uh, they'll be like, what? What did you say? You know, instead, if you say, actually, I think your, 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 your father's actually a pretty nice guy, then they somehow feel loved. I, I've noticed that That's in, so in certain relationships. So, and unless it has to yeah. do with a parent, yeah. in which case you saying that you actually like that person makes them feel loved. Otherwise, it's great. Never disagree with someone else's yeah. hot take on a, on a on a on a podcast host, for example. I just can't believe this app is not like it took this long for it to be invented. It's I, one of those I things, agree. Like, who didn't? Why? Well, the great thing would be though if you may, if you fuse this with like arranged marriages. And you just had to like, it was arranged marriage app and that's how you found your partner rather than, that would be a truly novel. So what else we got here, David? We've talked, we've talked fat shaming, we've talked bonding over... Yeah, uh, misanthropic just passion. Super uplifting today. Um, well, it's another social science thing. It's another thing related to eating. Uh, and this was our interview guest uh, today, Nadia, uh, alerted us to this. It was on NPR, why eating the same food increases people's trust and cooperation. And it's a report, it's a short report by Shankar Vedantam. Uh, who says that when you're eating with someone, obviously it means you're sharing another person's company, but there's also something else. When you eat together, one thing that happens is that you're usually eating the same food as the other person. And he interviews a researcher, Ayelet Fishbach, who says that food is about bringing something into the body. And to eat the same food suggests that we are willing to bring the same thing into our bodies. People just feel closer to people who are eating the same food as they do. And then trust, cooperation, these are just consequences of feeling close to someone. And they, she cites a study or he cites a study later on that like when volunteers uh, who were asked to volunteer were given the same kinds of food, they reached agreement much more quickly than when uh, different volunteers were given, like one group was given candy and the other one was given salty food. So if you want to use food to build trust, it's not enough to just uh, sit down with people. If you want to cater food for a company event or a community meeting, don't just aim to eat together. Try to ensure you're eating the same food that everyone else is eating. And this is why at the Mockingbird New York conference, we will only have one thing on the menu. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. We will have lots of different things. But it the way that what Nadia said and what I think is obviously true and what Christians have known for, uh, you know, millennia here is, um, has to do with, uh, you know, the experience of communion and that we're all eating the same bread and same wine. And it's, it's not, um, we're not, although some people are getting those gluten-free wafers, you know, they're clearly not uh, benefiting as much from communion, but, uh, <laughs> But but seriously, you're sitting there. Yeah. You're not only kneeling in humility. You're all receiving the exact same thing, and there is a closeness there. There is something ineffable and true, and that touches on the deepest bonds people have. Um, so. It always fascinates me why in, in the in congregations like that. Why doesn't everybody just eat a gluten free wafer? Like why do they don't we taste have good? Have you had one? Yeah, yeah but it's, part, it's not yeah, like it's part, not like regular wafers. So, it's part solidarity. You know, it's they good, taste like, wor- they taste like fake cheese. I can't with the. I had to like, like when we lived in New York and I was pregnant with Neil, it was, I guess it was when, when you consume everything, is it 
Good Friday where you consume everything. Do you guys know this practice? It's Fat Tuesday, I think. So that's what you're talking about? No, 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 no. You can you you want the church to be empty of everything. Uh, Maybe it's Monday Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the hosts out of the. You take all the hosts out of the. Yeah, yeah. So Josh, so Josh takes everything out, and there it's Josh and a lay woman and me standing there, and we all have to eat all of it. And there were so many gluten free wafers, and you know, I mean, you guys don't can't relate this, but when you're pregnant and you have to eat a lot of something you don't want to eat. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Prayers for so you're saying your your response to my theological question about why we seem to make a sociological division no, more normative is flavor. Mm. Flavor, okay. <laughs> yes. I just it's flavor, okay. Yes. I, 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 YDS graduate, everybody. There you go. The L, the, 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 y, the, the education. It's uh, the, uh, taste. The journalist does make a funny point because it it means that vegetarians uh, or vegans are just going to miss out. On all this, yeah. like being at the barbecue and having to eat something different, you're not like that's this is the social cost, and that's I think really tough. And you talk to anyone who's like celiac or mm-hmm. gluten free, and the social cost is the hardest thing. It's not just sure. saying no; it's, it's you. Where they think it's just being awkward and saying, actually, do you have something that you know what was cooked in the what what, what right. ingredients here? But the other thing is, you miss out on that. You're you're all eating the same thing. So yeah, I, I think there, of this as being such a modern problem. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Like. We used to just all eat, well, my people used to just all eat, like, greens and, like, you know, cornbread and, like, field peas. I mean, that, you know, like, you, everybody ate the same thing all the time. And now there's, like, so many options. And I was – so I'm reading this book. I don't know if you – David, do you know this book? Scott didn't know it. It's Dispatches from Pluto, Lost and Found in the Mississippi Delta. Have you heard of this? No. So it's fantastic. It's this guy, Richard Grant. He's British. And he and his girlfriend uh, moved to the Mississippi Delta to an old plantation home, Hmm. Um, totally on a whim. They leave Manhattan. And they have such a – I mean, the culture in Mississippi is different. The culture in the Delta is its own unique thing. And there's this family that keeps welcoming them in who are – much, I mean, incredibly conservative. Uh, he guesses, I'm sure, Republican. Everybody in the Delta mostly is. And um, and certainly very pious in their Christian faith. So I was just going to read a little bit of this because I thought of it when I was reading this article. Um, the following night, Kathy, so this is this family, Kathy is the matriarch, cooked us a big Southern meal with chicken fried deer meat, cornbread, green beans, butter beans, mashed potatoes, tomato gravy, and salad with two desserts to follow. When she, had as- when she had assembled us all at the table, she said, Louis, let's bless. He asked the Heavenly Father to bless the food on the table and the company of new friends and neighbors. And Mariah, this is the guy's girlfriend, and I bowed our heads and said, Amen. Neither of us grew up in Christian families. The blessing was a new custom for us and one that we came to appreciate, although we were more likely to feel thankful for the animals for giving us meat, the earth for growing the vegetables, and the sun for ripening the wine grapes. In the days and weeks to come, we had more meals with the Thompsons, more sunset cocktails at their house or ours, in a gentle, easygoing, incredibly kind and generous way. They took us under their wing and helped us feel less overwhelmed by our circumstances. Mm. And he goes on, he's so surprised by their continuous welcome and their continuous feeding of them. Mm. And so anyway, I kept kept sort of thinking of that and breaking bread together and, um, and what it means to welcome. It's interesting. There are two things I thought. One is that a Freakonomics episode recently called Trust Me, where they, they were talking about how social trust is such a, a, a resource for society. And they did a study in Italy, which has not the most functional government all the time with corruption and stuff, but they looked at where there was high social trust. The government functioned pretty well. 
even amidst a, a larger framework that didn't and and where there was low so social trust, the inverse is true. And it's hard to build social trust amidst diversity and the tensions of all this. So the other thing I was thinking about was there's a great book uh, called The Missionary Movement in Christian History, Studies and the Transmission of Faith. It's, I think it came out in 1997 by Andrew Walls, wonderful church historian. But the opening essay says, imagine we have this space traveler who's a religious cultural anthropologist from Mars or whatever, and he's trying to figure out what Christianity is. And he, he, he takes a look in the first century and he sees these people who are all Jews, reading from Israel scriptures, worship Jesus. And he describes, and then he goes to the fourth century. These people now, no one speaks Hebrew. They all are speaking in Greek. Uh, nobody keeps Sabbath. All the, and then he goes to the sixth century, and then you have these monks in Ireland, and they're they're not, not they're not speaking Greek now. And they're you know, he's, and then he goes to the nineteenth century and at Exeter at a meeting of missionaries who are part of the modern missionary movement. And then he ends at a indigenous African church service in West Africa where people are in white robes and dancing. And he's like, what would all these things have in common? Well, one is that the, the changes that one group allowed gave birth to the next one. Mm. And so without some of the concessions around Judaism and Judaizing, there wouldn't have been a Nicaea. And without, not, without certain provisions to make space for Gaelic Christianity, they wouldn't have, we wouldn't have European Christianity, the missionary movement, and, you know, the African indigenous movement, you know, and, and, and what will it birth? And in the end, he said, you know, he says that what we can find is that the common thread is Israel's scriptures and the persistence of water, bread, and wine. Mm. And wow. in the conclusion, he says, perhaps the most important thing to remember about the opponents of these early Gnostics is that they were just as Greek as the Gnostics themselves, with many of the same instincts and difficulties, but they knew instinctively that they must hold to their adoptive past. And in doing so, save the scriptures for the church. Perhaps the real test of theological authenticity is the capacity to incorporate the history of Israel and God's people and to treat it as one's own. And I think we do that through her scriptures and through these very concrete elements of water, bread, and wine, whether the bread be gluten-free or not. And last, we got a little homiletical action, huh, Dave? Yeah, switching from sacrament to word. Like how I did that? Yeah, it was um, nice. Yeah. It, I was just impressed you knew what homiletical meant. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little theological quiz. Yeah, there you go. Um, this is from Slate. Uh, not a place um, I would expect it, and uh, but it's, that's what makes it even nicer. Written by uh, Reverend Bernard Owens. Who Are we Slate shaming, Dave? Yeah, I mean, we're slate shaming. We're something valuable from of all places, Nazareth. I mean, slate. I would be happy to shame them any day of the week. Um, but uh, Bernard Owens, the light of the world. He's a rector in uh, I think Greensboro, North Carolina, talking about writing his first sermon in the age of Trump. And uh, I thought, oh gosh, what are we in for here? And then it's just remarkable. It's just a really a humble um, sort of admission about what it means to write a sermon, especially in sort of divisive times. And I'll, I'll read to you a little bit from it because he sort of talks, he begins by talking about a, a parishioner named Ralph, who was uh, one of the more conservative members of his congregation. Uh, and he said, uh, I think that Ralph's attendance imposed, uh, attendance imposed a certain discipline on me. 
If I was casting a vision of God's justice that hinted that true faith was decided along liberal or conservative lines, then I risk cutting people off. Long gone are the days when folks stay at your church because they're supposed to. In the worst case scenario, they stay only because they like the politics or the culture of the church. In the best case, they come to church because they experience God there. Preaching the issues of the day can be satisfying and even necessary, but given our polarized society, a pastor who preaches current events can quickly burn through the capital he or she needs to keep the church from becoming an echo chamber. A sermon that proclaims that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, but over and around Ralph in pew number eight, <laughs> yeah, I love that line, isn't going to work in the long run. And he talks about his own process. He says, most weeks, the, the hot button issues actually get edited out. I have learned that there are a whole host of words or thoughts that once uttered will be all that people remember, even if they were peripheral to the main point. In the week after the ban on refugees, what can we say about the importance of welcoming the stranger? Can I make a bold statement about it that doesn't diminish those who see it very differently? And might there be any number of other things going on in people's lives in the refugee ban, important though it might be? He closes by saying the church remains one of the few places in polarized America where people welcome rhetoric that challenges their assumptions and proclaims a different vision of the world. We still have that ability because of the relational nature of our work. A blogger won't call you when you lose a parent, and a politician doesn't greet you every Sunday. So while we have a job to do in the pulpit, we have to keep those channels open if our word is to have any authority. So on Sunday, I'll keep an eye towards Ralph's pew, and I'll be thinking about Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, emblazoned on a sign in our courtyard, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Those words give little direction to how to talk about the world of politics, but certainly offer an entree into how we Christians are called to welcome the vulnerable among us. Now, while he clearly misses the Gospel there um, about God welcoming the strangers, uh, aka us, it's a, I thought it was just a r- remarkably humble admission that topical sermons tend not to work, and uh, people do get caught up completely when you mention a certain names or certain issues. Not to say those things aren't important, but it misses the rhetorical ex- the experience of listening, and that um, people are actually really, as, as upset as they are about the refugee ban, but they're really upset about is the dissolution of their marriage or their boss that they can't stand, that they don't feel they can even talk. Scott, we've talked about this sort of the, the level three concerns. And um, and that preachers should really check themselves if their sermons are compl- follow 100% the the arc of any political party, that you are outside the realm of the gospel if you are towing a certain line. Though I feel like a lot of preachers feel it's their duty to sort of say these things. And actually, I was in an ecclesial context the other day where someone interrupted a service in order to make clear that they, to, to signal their own political virtue and had nothing to do with where the was service it? at hand. Name uh, names. <laughs> now, let's just say you were there as well. The, um, but it was... It was uh, I, I really like what 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 he's what he's saying about the relational aspect of preaching, um, and and how how in, in it is so easy. You, we really do have this opportunity to be input that's different than what people are hearing nonstop from the media and from the world around them, and uh, that the echo chamber that churches so often become because the echo chambers that human beings like to create. It's not just. In churches, so anyway, that's my that's my two cents. What do you guys think? Um, yeah, I was surprised at how much I liked what he had to say. I mean, I, I and I love this idea that there that he's recognizing um, 
the limitations of um, of pe- preaching on the issues. I mean, of the day, I, I, r- I really wish someone would have given me this article in seminary because I feel like I got the opposite of this in seminary. I feel like I got I mean, I remember someone lecturing to us and saying, like, you should write down the big issues that are happening and put them on your desk as you're writing your sermon. And so that's what you're going to that's basically that's what you're going to talk about. Um, you know, the other thing that came to mind for me was, while well, that is the gospel. This Sunday, the epistle is from um, is from Corinthians, uh, and I just love the way it begins in light of this article. Uh, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Um, which is also very important to hold uh, up this Sunday when we're getting in a pulpit. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is, this is an interesting thing. I, I don't know how far into this I should talk, right? Um, this is a conversation we keep having at home because there's a lot of comparisons right now with, um, you know, where were, where were all those clergy during the uh, the apartheid? Where were all those clergy during the Holocaust? Where were all those, cl- you know, and, um, you know, and shame on them, right, for not being in the streets and doing what they should, and shame on them for not getting more involved in politics, and um, shame, 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 shame. And so we should all feel shamed. Shame. Shame, shame. Bung. Shame. And yet, uh, they were in their pulpits, and they were helping people navigate something that was also incredibly horrific and hard for them. And they were helping people deal with the daily routine of their lives. Um, as much as we hate that people had daily routines in their lives, they still did, even in the midst of horror. And so it's like this bigger question of what what is the role of the of the clergy person, right? Mm-hmm. That what is the role of the cleric um, when people feel panicked? And um, it's a scary question, but it's a question that we keep having to answer with the gospel that's our role is is to is to preach the consolation of the gospel to the least the lost the last the lonely and i think what this guy misses and i love this article for a lot of reasons but what he misses is that you know david you pointed this out is that so often in mainline protestant protestantism we read the gospel and we're like well how can we be more like god i mean that's always the question that gets asked well what did god do because that's what we're going to do and it's like we ne- we never see ourselves and that's where we miss the point right um we never see ourselves as the least the last the lost and the lonely so mm-hmm. anyway yeah i i think like what it made me think of specifically was actually more narrow what is a sermon and what is preaching yeah. i Christianity Today had an article years ago where they were. it was in a series where they were trying to define the gospel. And one of the authors wrote about, thought, well, like, I just did a study of the book of Acts and s- tried to figure out what the early church preached. You know, what were the first sermons like preached to the first people, some of whom were Jews and had more religious context of, for a backdrop to the Christ event, others who didn't. Do you know the love of God is not mentioned by any preacher in the book of Acts in any sermon? In fact, if you do some concordance work, the word love isn't in the book of Acts one time. Wow. And said Paul and the other preachers reiterate themes about the death and resurrection of Jesus, divine judgment, the need for repentance, the belief in Christ. And they don't always do all of them at once. There are some sermons that don't have the cross at all, some that have the resurrection, some that the cross without resurrection. Uh, but, you know, Paul's exposition on the love of God, uh, from you know the great theme in like Romans five that God loved us while we we're still sinners. That didn't make it into the preaching. 
for whatever reason. <laughs> and that, you know, what's interesting to note too is that when Paul is with Jews, he reasons from the scriptures and explains how it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So this, the focal point was this Jesus whom I preach to, unto you is the Christ. When Paul is with Gentiles, <laughs> like the like the uh, the Lyconians and the Greeks in Acts seventeen, he begins with things like creation and Hellenistic poetry and what you can see in nature and how that testifies to you know the divine presence. So I'm just saying, it's, I think like we all think our hermeneutics are are great, <laughs> like but you, but I think it, if you look at the early church, uh, the way they proclaimed the gospel was varied. And 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 it, and you can I don't know. Karl Barth said, you know, that God can uh, speak revelation through a flute concerto, a communist manifesto, or a dead dog. And so I think that on some level, as long as, as, long as we know that it's uh, it's sort of like we talked about a few weeks ago, we're not saved, we're justified by faith, not by our belief in justification by faith. Yeah. And, and so uh, you know, some well, some any anything can be. A sermon on one level, if God takes it up and points to Christ crucified for us through it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I, I'll go back to the hater app here, though, because I think that uh, it really does depend. It, it, what, what, it, what is this? It is a sermon, though, formally speaking, a chance to tell people what they need, to, what they should think or how they should feel about something, or um, is, it a, is it a chance to argue with them, or is it a chance to uh, bring to bear some kind of message of, of hope, comfort, consolation? And I, 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 so while anything can be a sermon, I know what can't be a sermon, <laughs> or I feel like, or at least I feel like a lot of times it, it, you, you do get to the state where my job as a preacher is to tell these people what, what they should think or what they should do. And I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's the um, that's not the place that may be the place for other uh, other vocations in the ministry, but I'm not sure that's the pulpit. I think the pulpit is for the Christ and Him crucified. You could start a new hater app, like a Christian hater app, where you just hate put in the sermons you hate. God, yeah, I have that. You up. haven't seen that app? I started that. We we need to exactly. Let's get that in development. Yeah, I mean, Lord <laughs> knows, I I I fail at this. I'm not. I'm not. I, so anyway, it's, but I I do think that that's where 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 we end up. With uh, if you, if you leave that, then all of, of course you just become about uh, telling people what to do, what to think, and um, that people feel patronized and condescended to, and they don't feel uh, comforted and tired. I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that if you get up in the pulpit and you're telling people what they need to do and how they need to feel and what this looks like in their Christian walk in faith, I mean. It's for me, it's like, am I going to have a cup of tea after church or am I going to have a mimosa? I mean, that's that's how I gauge a sermon. And if I have sat there and I have listened to you tell me all these things I need to do and how I'm going to improve my walk with Jesus through, you know, whatever protests or whatever. I mean, it's not just a left thing. It's a right thing, too. Then I'm going to want to drink after church. Like, I'm going to want to forget whatever you just told me. It's not going to settle in with me. Oh, wait, the mimosa was bad. I thought the mimosa was the good one. I was like, oh, I I was like, oh, children to take care of. It's irresponsible Uh for me to have a mimosa at lunch. But I will if I have heard a lot of bad news from the pulpit because I bring my own bad news in and I need to be reminded, like, that's not all that I have to carry, and I don't uh, carry it alone. Yeah, and I think your point is well taken. That I think like the kind of legalistic moralizing also has a, a rich history in the church. Yes. I mean, John John Chrysostom, the end of no matter what the sermons, it seemed like so often the application is the same thing. Don't go to the theater. 
but 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 when, when I, but possibly, but possibly though, I think oftentimes the the gospel which is preached richly, we it, it it's tones in in certain periods. We would we were like, really, that's the gospel. Like, I mean, that's mm. that's where people discovered the love of God because we kind of situationally wind up. I mean, I think the thing that that helps anchor it is what Andrew Wall said. It's 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 water, bread, and wine, and realizing those things are gifts. Mm. And and that we're invited yes, as brother. strangers in, mm-hmm. and yeah, we are. It's it is th- that fundamental recognition that we're the strangers welcomed. Uh, yeah. It's probably what needs to be heard more than why than which strangers we aren't welcoming. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's and it's a spirit's work. So it's it's nice that it's not a formula or like another to do thing, right? But, uh, and on that note, the spirit is telling me we got to wrap up. Yeah, <laughs> Go all day. All right. Talk to you all next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes. Give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson and Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.